would rational Chinese people attack, do this attack? No. Is Xi Jinping a rational person? Probably not. So what will he do? I don't know. You know, if I have this president that I love who got elected and then all the opposition says, well, you only got elected with help from like this dude overseas. I'm going to be like, well, he sounds like a pretty good dude. Why are educated people more likely to be depressed? <laughs> because if you think about stuff a lot, you'll get depressed. A smart person is like, what happens after you die? Nothing. It's just nothingness. And I'll never think anything again. And no one will ever think anything again. And that's just our lot in life. And nothing matters. And we're just tiny little particles on this orb spinning through the infinite blackness of void space. There's no God and nothing is ever meant to everything. And dumb people are thinking like, I like Cheetos. I want some Cheetos. Here's a Cheeto. Yum. Crunch. And like... <laughs> That's <laughs> this good. This is called rumination. That's a cold open. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. So our last episode was on higher ed. A little bit about populism as well. And I wanted to segue this episode into uh, student debt, which you wrote about, as well as just millennials more broadly and how they compare to other generations economically, politically, culturally. But let's first start with with student debt, because you've evolved your position over over the years as things have as things have changed. Why don't, why don't you trace your evolution of thinking on how you think about student debt? Right. Well, student debt, you know, back during the 2010s, right? Especially the mid, early to mid 2010s, the economy was still kind of slow. Even years after the financial crisis, we hadn't just hopped right back on our feet. And there was no inflation to speak of. There was no real reason not to, you know, kind of turn on the fiscal taps. And at the same time, we had a whole bunch of people who had gotten sort of uniquely screwed by graduating into this terrible recession. So, we know that there's some just negative general benefit, negative effects in general of student debt. Uh, you know, it locks people into jobs, right? If you have a, if you have to make all these loan payments, switching jobs or quitting to start your own company or whatever is difficult, right? Because you're not a, uh, you're you're sort of chained to this monthly payment. So my idea was, okay, so why not just just address all these things with one blanket policy? Do a one-time student debt cancellation. That will, you know, that'll help the the millennial generation or the older millennials, especially like my generation. Although I didn't have student, uh, I, I paid off my student debt very quickly. But um, uh, you know, a lot of people were hurt by graduating into that terrible job market. So why not help them out? Um, cancel some of this debt, and also that'll give a stimulus boost to the economy, which needed stimulus boost at the time. Um, and it might be just good in general. So I thought, all right, so cancel student debt. Let's do that. Then some things changed. Number one, um, the uh, you know the population of student debt, the, the the young people with student debt, the cohort changed, right? So now it's the younger millennials and increasingly the Zoomers, um, younger millennials who basically didn't graduate into the Great Recession. They graduated into the very strong job market of the late 2010s and of the post-pandemic era, and you know so they're doing all right and. So, you know, it's a little less, a bit less targeted. Uh, but most of all, what really changed was inflation. You know, we, we are out of the Great Recession. We've been out for a long time. We were out 
Um, we started to recover really in 2012. Uh, but we had by by 2019 we had fully recovered from the Great Recession, and now we are just so far beyond that. I think the once you adjust for age, the employment rates in America are the highest they have ever been in our history. So that's good, um, and plus we have inflation now. So um, now inflation is going away, like it's subsiding, which is good. But for the last few years we've had inflation, and um, and suddenly we have all these other really high priority things we need to spend a lot of money on, especially. Um, industrial policy. We need to spend a lot of money on decarbonization. We need to spend a lot of money on industrial policy to like, you know, preserve, um, you know, high value industries or strategic industries in China and just to compete with China in general. Uh, we need to spend a lot of money and also military buildup. We're going to need to do that. Uh, Ukraine has shown us that it's a scary world now. And so we have all these other spending priorities at the same time as, uh, you know, we've got inflation, we need to cut somewhere. And, you know, the, the easiest thing to cut is student debt relief, because it's really a low priority at this point. So I've switched to being opposed to student debt relief uh, now because of inflation, because of the need to spend money on other things. And um, yeah, just the initial justifications have partly gone away. And it, it only exacerbates the root problem, or canceling student debt would only exacerbate the root problem, which is no cost accountability for for universities. That That is true, although uh, Biden's plan, which the part of the plan that the Supreme Court didn't strike down, which has gone into effect, is income-based repayment. That will uh, make student loans harder to get, because who's going to give student loans to someone that they don't think will end up paying it back? Right. And of course, the government can keep out dishing it dishing out the loans, but the government is going to, is going to really cut back on this too. And private companies won't do it. So the, the bonanza for the universities is kind of over, I think. Yeah. Yes. So I think that that's not that big a deal. Uh, the, the moral hazard as we would call it in economics, yep. um, it, it's a deal, but it's it's not a very big deal. Is it fair to say that the university accreditation system is something like a cartel in the sense that it's very hard for new entrants to, um, emerge like Think of the, the the you know the best universities were started like hundred plus years ago, um, you know even in things like Facebook, Google, Amazon, these are epic monopolies. But every forty years they get disrupted, but universities don't get disrupted. Is is that partially because it's just so hard to to compete, and because the government is creating a um, like un, unequal playing field, and it's hard to get access to those same resources? No, not at all. And I'll tell you why, because uh, for about 20 years, we had this gigantic boom in accredited for-profit institutions. I mean, you have to go through accreditation, whatever, it's annoying, but so many people did it. And sure. private, the, the for-profit university phenomenon massively expanded education in America, and they all went bust. None of them were providing money, uh, value for money. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't do it, and they died. And a lot of the problematic student debt is people who went to those crappy for-profits and ended up holding the bag. We can talk about why they failed, why that, that, that model didn't work, but the fact is it did not work. And, um, but yet ma there was massive expansion in terms of um, schools from, from newly accredited schools, for-profit schools. It wasn't that hard in the end. Yeah. Um, and they all went bust. But... Um, the other reason why it's not that big a deal is on top of that, on top of the for private boom, existing schools can expand their uh, their admissions very, you know, as much right. as they want. So, like, if you are the University of Michigan, you educate 
I don't remember how many people went to the University of Michigan, like 40,000? Yeah, I think 40,000. Maybe 40,000. And so you can you can expand that to 80,000. No one's stopping you. You just, you know, the state won't necessarily fund you. Yeah. But if you have the money, if you can charge the tuition to pay for that, you can absolutely expand, uh, you know, to 80,000, to 120,000. Open up a new campus. Schools open up new campuses all the time. Yeah. So it's not... Universities are demand subsidized, but not really supply constrained. And so it just begs the question of why we don't see new uh, entrants like competing at high quality. Like, why can't we have a competitor to Ivy League schools that come out and that have a radically different approach that do well? Right. There's been Minerva, oh, well, there's been a couple. I mean, you used to see that all the time, right? You used to see uh, schools come out and compete with the Ivy League. You saw the introduction of new government schools. They competed with them. You saw new private schools that, you know, boost themselves. I mean, Stanford was not that amazing of a school until relatively recently. It was around, you know, it was like a rich person's sort of like little private pet project, but it didn't really become a powerhouse until, you know, until later. Um, you saw a, a number of schools gain a hell of a lot of prestige from admitting Jewish students when there was anti-Semitism in admissions. You know, in the in the fifties, you saw these schools like uh, Baruch. I think was a big college in New York that was just like, "Well, we'll admit you. We're a Jewish college." And then then suddenly they shot the rankings, and there were all these people getting hired from Baruch. And the other the other, the other schools like, mm, "I guess we better admit some Jews too." Her her. And then like they really schools should be clamoring to do the same thing with Asian students right now. You know, the, the anti Asian bias that exists now, like. So many lower ranked schools could boost their prestige just by like massively blasting with the Asian missions. And honestly, some are trying to do that. Um, Texas A&M, huh. you know, the, the, the university in the town where I grew up, College Station, Texas, Gigam Aggies. That's that's our, <laughs> our thing. Texas A&M has has really made hay with this. They've they've just said, well, you know, like, we'll take you. And then that boosts their prestige. And so there is competitiveness there in terms of new entrants. Honestly we should just expand enrollment. Yeah. You know, at, at schools, we don't even need new colleges to be honest. Like, yes, it would be cool to have some new colleges and it'd be exciting and fun competition, um, competition, new, but yeah. like we can have competition right now. Like existing schools can absolutely compete, but, but they're, but they're not going to, right. It's going to be difficult. State funding was cut in the great recession and, uh, and has never recovered really. Um, or at least not recovered anywhere near trend. State funding was cut. Uh, international students are increasingly avoiding the United States, um, especially from China. That's unavoidable. Um, Indian students are still coming, but we're get, just getting fewer international students than we were. They, the Chinese students paid really high tuition. The sort of in the 2010s, we made up for the the vanished state funding by massively overcharging Chinese students for an American sheepskin. Huh. That's done. That racket's over. I was part of that racket. Stony Brook did that plenty. You know, <laughs> I was there. I, I loved all the Chinese kids that I like. All, almost all my students were Chinese. I loved them. They were great. I was very happy that they were able. They weren't the best students I'd ever seen. You right. know, the, these are not the uh, the super whiz kids who are like, you know, doing the, the top engineering stuff. But they, they were they were good people, you know, absolutely solid, nice middle class people. And and a lot of them stayed in America. And I was absolutely fine with that. I liked it. A lot of people hated it. They were stupid. Uh, the people who hated it, like it was a good thing to get all those those Chinese kids and to overcharge them. And they're they were mostly rich kids from China. And you know what? 
that was fine and that was over it's over now you know like yeah. that that racket is over that was a thing with an expiration date and it can't happen again and we can get and indian students want to come but they can't pay as much speaking of, of, of racket depending on your perspective do you think universities will lose their tax exemption favored status or like will they be treated differently mm, i don't know have you been hearing about that no I, i've heard from people who would like that to happen um but um hmm. One it, problem with that is that the tax exempt status of universities is actually a lot of that is a research tax break. Interesting. So when you take away universities tax exempt status, you're taxing um, money that goes to research and therefore you're defunding research to some extent. And America really needs to fund research more to keep up with China and win, win the 21st century. We need to do that. And, um, and so, so ex Removing universities' tax-exempt status might hit re, would hit research funding. Interesting. Um, so that's dangerous. Well, maybe it'll, the, maybe it'll happen. I don't know if it'll happen or not. Actually, what's the right way of thinking about? You know, I hear something like uh, this might I don't know this might be over exaggeration, but Harvard has like forty billion dollar endowment or something. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if that, if that grows, you know, seven percent a year, ten percent. Like, what is the right way of thinking about? Like, and is that tax exempt too? Like, at some point, that's going to be a hundred billion dollars. Like. How, what is the you know we what do they do with that money? I mean I think I think we should tax we should tax you know proceeds from endowments, but we should also realize that is going you know, we, we need to replace the research funding that's lost. Yeah. We need to directly fund research and so so tax income fund research. Yeah. That's what we should do. Yeah. And and that that those endowments are just gonna get bigger and bigger and and you hope that they're reinvested into the into the research, basically? Yeah. I mean, I don't really know what they're doing with that $40 billion. Yeah. <laughs> Like, honestly, like, what are you doing with that? Yeah. You know, they can, know. you yeah. can make some income off it, but like, you know, and use that to pay for stuff. Yeah. Um, but then sense. what are you, what are you using it to pay for? Like, right. are you just using it to pay for like schmancier dorms or, you know, like overpaying for like really old profs who got Nobel prizes back when they were doing real research? Like, what are you doing with that money? And and a lot yeah. of what they're doing is just over hiring of administrative staff. Yeah, they're just hiring like you know, like I'm the dean of foosball. <laughs> like I go around and make sure that everyone knows how to play foosball. Yeah, aren't, and, aren't like most employees just administrators or like most people at these colleges now? Well, employees? now, yeah, <laughs> it didn't used to be, but yes, they yeah. they are fascinating. Um, there must be a dean of foosball. Did you ever play foosball? <laughs> I played foosball. foosball yeah, I never met a dean of foosball, but I'm a solid foosball player. Uh, yeah, would you have been? Would you have been better with a dean? <laughs> yeah, maybe there's some coaching I didn't know I needed, or some uh, oversight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The um, would get pretty rowdy. Um, <laughs> let's um, let's segue into uh, or go back to your piece because um, you're talking about millennials, and so w w what is the state of millennials? How should we think about that? Well, so. Um, I'm technically a millennial. You're you're solidly in the millennial yes. generation. Uh, I feel like millennials, educated millennials, developed this massive sob story around. Oh, we get screwed by the Great Recession, and then we get screwed by addition capitalism sucks, and blah 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 blah. And like, there was this idea that millennials were generation screwed, and you saw all these these stories, and like every major news outlet ran a generation screwed story. Right. I, maybe I even wrote one, I don't, but it was it was all an artifact of the Great Recession. And now uh, we're starting to see all that just unwind. 
in terms of income, millennials are, you know, ahead of where any other generation was. In terms of wealth, they're at the same level, which is to say that uh, after adjusting for inflation, millenni a millennial who's 32 today or, or let's say or 35 has just about the same amount of wealth as a boomer or Gen Xer did when they were the same age in terms of dollars. Now you can say, well, on one hand, that's a sucky result because they should have more, right? On the other hand, you can say, well, A, they spend a longer time in college, so they got started later. So they will ultimately have more from just working and saving because their incomes are higher. And B, when the boomers die, where do you think that wealth goes? <laughs> Is it, it doesn't just get like randomly dropped into Zimbabwe or somewhere. <laughs> like, although it would be nice if it did because the Zimbabweans <laughs> could really use that. But the wealth will be inherited by millennials and it's is it is that a fair distribution of wealth no we should have a giant ass inheritance tax like japan does but it will happen and so in aggregate the millennials are staring down the barrel of a gigantic inheritance on top of the increased incomes that will ultimately allow them to have more wealth than their parents did yeah and so the idea of generation screwed was a temporary thing from the Great Recession, from the fact that we had this financial crisis and recession that lasted five years, yeah. right? This crappy economy that lasted five years, six years, and wasn't quite a lost decade. It was like a lost half decade. And during that time, everyone's like, oh, we're screwed. And we it's been hard to get out of that mentality, especially because in the 2010s, we went into this period of social unrest and everyone was looking for something to be upset about during the era of social unrest, right? Everyone was looking for something yeah. to be upset about. And for, for educated millennials who seem to have it all, it was like, oh, we were screwed by the Great Recession. Look at my student debt, you know? Like, and so now things are basically writing itself and the engine of upward mobility is, is, has been working for a while now. It's been functioning for, you know, like a decade now. And um, despite COVID, which blew right past COVID, <laughs> and uh, despite inflation, which blew right past inflation, and um, and the engine of prosperity is working and you know millennials are all right now yeah and what does this mean for their politics uh you have another post you know is there is there a big chill because they're you know known as the activist uh ge generation right so so most people here probably haven't seen the movie the big chill but it is a movie that is extremely polarizing some people despise it some people love it i love it it is also uh, sort of Jeff Goldblum's breakout role, I think, um, and even has an uncredited cameo by Kevin Costner. Wow. Um, and so it's about these boomers who, were, uh, who went to the University of Michigan, as you do, as all awesome people do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they went to the University of Michigan, and they were college radicals. They were going to overthrow capitalism and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And, and, and when they weren't, you know, hooking up and having sex, they were thinking of how to overthrow capitalism. You know, and then, then what happened, they graduated, they, you know, they got jobs, they made some money, they tried activist careers, but it didn't quite work out. So then they just went and they sold out and went to corporate or started their own businesses or bought a bunch of real estate or became a well-known, I think there's one, one guy who's like a sort of a blogger in there and he, he went into the independent media thing, but, um, one became like a, a well, fairly well-known actor and, um, and then they all get together, at, you know, when their their friend dies, their friend Kevin Costner, uh, just uh, dies. I think I think he kills himself. Or spoiler alert, 
<laughs> no, I don't remember. No, that's that's the setup of the movie. Oh, God. That's like what you learned at the very beginning. Right. The actual plot is just like these like old hippies getting back together and like hooking up and remembering their college days. It's like, <laughs> I love that. I love movies that are just about regular people doing regular people things. You know, yeah. I don't need superheroes. <laughs> exactly. Like, I want, I want human beings. Anyway, but it's great because it's, it's this iconic sort of journey of the baby boomers from these, these college radicals to these, um, satisfied yuppie, you know, middle-aged, uh, people, Americans like, and, and I just remember this, there's this one, two of the guys are walking along and he looks to the other guy and says, you know, when we were young, did you ever think we'd make so much bread? <laughs> Which means money. If you're a baby boomer, bread means money. Yeah. I think it still does. But anyway, um, so then, yeah, they, they, uh, and, and, and now I imagine millennials looking at each other and saying, did you ever think that we'd make so much bread? And just looking around and be like, Hey, I'm actually prosperous. Yeah. Like I have a nice house. I, you know, home ownership for the millennials is just tracking earlier generations. Exactly. Yeah. And for zoomers, interestingly, even though they're really young still, but then yeah, home ownership rates are absolutely tracking. Millennials are on the housing escalator. They've got the middle-class wealth. And so they're going to look at each other and say, did you ever think we'd make so much bread? And <laughs> you know, the, the, the real activist generation among the millennials was not quite the same generation that got screwed. The activists, huh. the activists were the younger millennials, right? right? The people who are now, um, now like basically, uh, in their thirties. Yeah. Right. Or in their, or in their late twenties through late thirties. Mm -hmm. um, those, those were the activist generation who participated in the unrest and who were the vanguard of, you know, BLM and of every other activist movement, um, that you could think of including like, yeah, I don't know, trans movement, whatever you want to yeah. say, but also, you know, and then there were the, the sort of like rightist hipster people who were also of that generation who were like, you know, I'm all right. I'm a Nancy. And then like those people who you can tell yeah. what I think of them, but, um, but all these people like they, that generation is easing into middle age. Yeah. Middle age begins in your late thirties. And the, as those, as that activist generation eases into prosperous middle age with no scars from any great recession at all, Right. It was it was all me, my generation, the older millennials who were the reasonable Obama liberals. We got hit with the Great Recession. You punks. You didn't. You yeah. just got like Twitter and iMessage and went out and marched a lot. We were the ones who took the economic hit anyway. Um, so yeah, exactly. A little a little inter inter mini generational rivalry here. <laughs> so did you expect their their politics to moderate a little bit? Yes, they will. Um, and it'll as be they get older as they get older and it'll be weird because everyone has cognitive dissonance, right? You're going to have to remember why you were so, so enthused about Bernie Sanders when you were <laughs> 21. And then by the time you get to like 41, you're starting to say, well, maybe, you know, I don't know, Glenn Youngkin, president <laughs> Youngkin has a point actually, <laughs> you know, like people are going to have to justify that to themselves. Just like boomers who ended up voting for Reagan, who went from like hippie to Reagan had to justify that. Like my uncle, Right. He's back to being a complete lefty. But when he was in college, he was a super lefty. And then when he got out of college, he became like a Reagan voter and an entrepreneur, you know, um, and then got rich. And then 
he then he he got really serious and blah blah, blah and would like you know just just talk about conservative politics stuff all the time and then in his old age he started smoking a bunch of weed and then uh got really you know anti-trump and said trump is the new hitler and like you know we've got to rise up and so he went back to his leftist roots so there's this interesting journey of this boomer dude my uncle but um i i like him he's a really sweet guy but uh but um you're gonna have to you're gonna see that and there was this study, you know, a lot of people think, oh, millennials aren't trending conservative like their previous generations were, uh, especially you, you saw this um, study from the Financial Times that showed the curves of boomers and Gen Xers, liberal and then conservative as they aged. And you saw the millennials hadn't even got on the conservative thing yet. But Nate Cohn uh, of the New York Times pulled some data showing that in America, you are starting to see this progression. Hmm. you're starting to see the millennials get more conservative. Maybe they won't do it quite as much. Maybe the meaning of conservative will shift. I certainly hope so because I do not want, you know, like um, I do not want Ralph Reed and the Christian coalition from when I was a little kid. I do not want that in the future. Like I do not want, I do not want like 1992 conservatism back and I don't want Trump and I don't want George W. Bush launching wars. I don't want any of that, but, um, so I hope conservatism will evolve, but I do think that the the Democrats who hope that demographics is destiny and that all the Republican voters are going to just age out and die and then everyone will vote Democratic and the country will just be California will not happen. That will not happen. And I think that, you know, millennials getting like old and prosperous and more conservative is one part of that happening. What is a model of conservatism that you... Uh, if millennials had to pick, you just mentioned the ones that you don't like. What's one that you would be more okay with if, if they reverted back to? I want the conservatism of like, um, well, people are going to get mad at me for saying this. I want, I want Bill O'Reilly back. <laughs> Maybe without the sexual harassment. But I want, <laughs> I want conservatives to be like your angry uncle who is like, why are... You know, stop listening to those rap lyrics and get a real job. What's your five-year plan, young man? Like, at some point, you've got to get married and settle down. Like, you know, I know when you're young, it's fun to date around, but then you've got to settle down and have some kids. Is you it know, Jor and like Jordan and, Peterson. Well, I, Jordan Peterson without the psychosis. Yeah. Like, I mean, you yeah. know, you've got to have like conservatives that emphasize, like, you know. How about conservatives who like the military? Mitt, Mitt Romney? Yes, like Mitt Romney. But And like many conservatives actually yeah. still like the military. Tom Cotton likes the military. Like, yeah. where's the conservatism of support the troops? Where did that go? Why are the, you know, why are all these like weird online right people talking about, um, you know, like, are they them army? Russia's going to crush us because they do more push-ups. Like... <laughs> Or Trump making fun of like McCain. He's like, I like people who don't get captured. Like, what? Shut up. That yeah. you're a disgrace. Like, yeah. I don't I don't care what end of the political spectrum you come from. That is a just a disgrace. Like, where are the where are the conservatives to support like Murica, fuck yeah, you know, work hard, go to church, private enterprise business, and yeah. you know, like whatever like where's where's classic conservatism why do we have all these goddamn weirdos running around with conspiracy theories like why how did how did right-wing people become the crystal healing people 
How did they become the people who don't believe in vaccines and who believe in the deep state and who believe in Q and who believe in, you know, I don't know, who are like making little songs like, why can't we talk about the Jews like that girl made the other day? Shut up. Jesus Christ, that's not conservative. You're just an idiot. All right. How's that for a rant? <laughs> it's a great rant. Um, how do we explain why it changed? Um, it, it was, is Trump really an anomaly or was he expressing this sort of latent change in the in the party's like demographic or preference like how do you explain the changes i think a few things happened i think traditional conservatism had a lot of failures in the 2000s oh. i think that deregulation especially financial deregulation and tax cuts you know tax cuts didn't do much when bush did them um though probably we had lost all the firepower like when kennedy did them they probably did something uh, because tax rates are real high. By the time Bush did them, they didn't do much. Then financial deregulation caused the Great Recession, blew up the economy. You know, it wasn't enough to just say, you know, make money in real estate. Like, it just didn't work anymore. And so, um, uh, and then um, the sort of muscular pro-American stance of Reagan got sort of perverted into the the pro-Iraq war position. It was like, you know, in the in the 80s, we opposed the Soviets. Right. And then by the 2000s, we were, you know, there were real bad guys out there to oppose. But instead, we were just invading some random two bit dictatorship that didn't attack us at all, like uh -huh. just to prove that we were tough and knock someone around. That was nuts. And so that that sort of discredited the, the Reaganite muscular international conservatism. And then gay marriage conservatives just really took a giant L on that one because yeah. Honestly, like two two guys getting married is like that's pretty conservative. <laughs> yeah, and like exactly. in, in San Francisco, the, the the gays are the conservatives in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> and like they did the conservatives missed that. They just, you know, they 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 drew this line in the sand in the nineties of saying like we will not allow gay to become mainstream. Yeah. And it's like gay but gay people are just so normal and nothing absolutely nothing wrong with gay people yeah. they were all the conservatives were going to lose tradition yeah. can't hold back the march of just normality yeah and so they they were always going to lose and they should have adjusted they should have said okay fine gays get married you know like good good gays go get married they should have said that like marriage yes good right. they didn't um they they it was a miscalculation by a lot of evangelical churches um and blah, blah, blah. And it was just really terrible. And then, um, yeah. And so I think those all those failures at once created this vacuum. Everybody in the Republican Party hated George W. Bush and the legacy of George W. Bush. Yeah. No one wanted to go back to that uh, because he lost on the thing you know, on gay marriage or he, he lost on the things they cared about. And um, uh, anyway, so then Trump filled that vacuum. Yeah. Trump came and provided something to fill the vacuum of conservatism that that Bush had left when he just screwed up and was incompetent. Bush's incompetence and the nat and and the incompetence of some right wing activists and targeting gay marriage, um, those two things together, uh, and, and you know to some degree, um, you know Clinton's incompetence too. He did financial deregulation, but conservatism basically just screwed the pooch, and it should have just picked itself up dust itself off and said guess what we need to change now if you're gay and you get married that's cool yeah and peter Thiel knew this right peter yeah. Thiel tried to do this 
Um, Peter Thiel, chess master, always thinking 12 moves ahead, tried to do this and, and there was not enough constituency for it. Yeah. You know, he, he got up at the Republican convention in 2016 and talked, no one cared what Peter Thiel had to say. And that, I think that was the moment when he saw that there was no response to his speech and that no one was listening to what he said, that he began, began to get less political. Yeah. That Teal realized that his brand of intellectual conservatism could not be mainstreamed because most people just aren't intellectual enough to understand what Peter Teal is talking about. And yeah. so um, so I think uh, we, we should have conservatives should have, um, you know, on, on national defense, they should have rebranded toward opposing Russia and China. And Mitt Romney tried yeah. to do that. Right. And he, he failed. Um, instead of this weird 1920s isolationism Henry Ford crap, they should have they should have rebranded toward the Tom Cotton thing, which is oppose the su- enemy superpowers. Yeah. And if Russia had invaded Ukraine during Trump, do you think things would have been flipped where? Well, first off, like what would have you know, would uh, Trump as foreign policy have been significantly different, you think, or, or the same? And then separately, um, if it would have been the same, do you think that? Um, the right would have been pro um, Ukraine um, and and the left again. Like, how, how could things have been different? Just because twenty years ago the right was pro Iraq, and today the left is pro Ukraine. You know, it's it's hard to see why that is. I think the pattern was that Trump was very cowardly on the international stage. Ultimately, he even backed down from most of his China stuff. Trump, he's not a brave man, and uh, he he's he's a cowardly man. He you know, dodge the draft as <clears throat> basically like avoided, you know, direct confrontation unless he knew he could win every time in his life. And um, I don't think he would have had the confidence to stand up and say, we're, we're going to support Ukraine with whatever you need. And now, right now we're seeing the Europeans. I, I think at first it was just the Americans mainly supporting Ukraine. It was all American stuff like Javelin, HEGMs, whatever. Uh, and us, we were paying all the money to Ukraine. Yeah. Then we've seen Europe start to step up. We've seen European defense budgets increase. We've seen Europe uh, get tougher about a gas embargo. We've seen Europe get more united. Um, we've seen Europe get more pro-Ukraine and start giving them, you know, tanks and missiles and all this stuff that they're giving them. That wasn't true at the beginning. At the beginning, it was mostly us. Right. And so had eventually, you're, we've gotten to the point now where Europe, will probably eventually be able to take over the defense of Ukraine against Russia. Um, and I think they will. And I think America is going to have to pivot to Asia, of course, and and put Ukraine on the back burner or whatever. But at the beginning, in that initial phase, that initial few months, uh, it was America that did it all. Right. And had we not, Ukraine would have fallen. So I think that Ukraine would have been conquered. I mean, I think there would be a massive guerrilla resistance and, and right. you know, like I would think there would still be a war there. It would just be a war of liberation to liberate Ukraine instead of to resist Russian conquest or retake parts right. of Ukraine or whatever we're seeing now um, with Trump, I think, just out of pure cowardice. Right. But how did the right go from, I mean, the stereotype of neocons with that they were so hawkish, right? So eager to, 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 to get involved. Um, and how did they go from that to... So isolationist, is it because just different people, the right reconstituted itself or was the electorate never actually for the, for, for the war? Like how, how do you make the electorate change their mind or change the well, constituency? One is just overlearning, right? It's like, 
we we tried to be aggressive we that that sucked that was a failure i mean we won the iraq war but no one cared like it was a you know it was a big debacle even though we won um and so so i think that disillusionment with that caused people to overlearn that lesson um that was part of it another part of it was that a number of people on the right not the republican party as a whole but a number of people on the right uh after 2016 started to see russia as their friend and the reason was not necessarily because Russia helped Trump get elected. The reason was that a whole bunch of Democrats started yelling that Russia helped Trump get elected. Right. So if I, you know, if I have this president that I love who got elected and then all the opposition says, well, you only got elected with help from like this dude overseas. I'm going to be like, well, he sounds like a pretty good dude. Even if I don't think that he actually helped. Right. Even though even though Republicans don't think that like Putin pulled the strings of the 2016 election. Right. They don't think that. But the idea that Dems would go after Putin made some people a little sympathetic to Putin. I would say not most, but a, some people got more sympathetic to Russia because of Russia Gate. And I think that this made them naturally sympathetic to Russian narratives, easily propagandized by the Kremlin propaganda machine, which is still the best in the world. So do you think if it were if we were Taiwan and China, the right would be have a different view on it? It's, it's selectively isolationist? Well, that's a really good question. Again, abstracting from Trump's own personal cowardice, I think that we've seen Republicans much more excited about standing up to China than standing up to Russia. We've seen people like Elbridge Colby, who basically downplayed the need to support Ukraine, but then really plays up the need to support Taiwan, um, although he often gets mad at Taiwan for not doing enough to support itself, but that's another issue. You, you've seen a lot more just anti-China antipathy from the Republican Party, um, then you might. And so I, I, that's an interesting question. What will happen? Uh, I, I believe that support for Taiwan will be bipartisan, will be equal, and that you will not see this, um, that, that you will have some people on both sides who want to withdraw support, and it will be for commercial reasons. It will be people who are invested in China. It will be monetary rather than any sort of imagined ideological like Russiagate bullshit. Because no one really cares about Russia. It's got gas. It's got nothing else. It's yeah. just like the gas and snow and like, you know, I don't know, annoying people. <laughs> like, no one really likes them. Um, but like, but China is hugely important to the world economy. A lot of people are invested there. And so you're going to see big democratic donors argue for no war with China over Taiwan because their, their investments will be imperiled. Rank and file, just regular Democrats and Republicans think, screw you, China. I also think that it's likely, I'm not a military analyst, but I think it's pretty likely that China would open hostilities by attacking our bases at um, Guam, Okinawa, and the Philippines. Huh. And that it would try to take out these bases with missile strikes so that we would not be able to prevent the invasion of Taiwan, that we would not be able to keep them off the beaches. And once you Pearl Harbor America, America is in it. The The wishful thinking was that if you hit America hard enough, their isolationism would cause them to withdraw. What it really did was it killed isolationism for 70 years. Pearl Harbor, that day, destroyed American isolationism for 70 years. And, you know, only once Trump came in, that was the end of Pearl Harbor, when Trump came into power, because, like, that was the first time we had thought about maybe we should just withdraw to our borders and not worry about the world. The first time... We we had thought that thought 
since the bombs began falling on Pearl Harbor. After Pearl Harbor, yeah. unanimous support for the war. Charles Lindbergh, who was a Nazi sympathizer, got, you know, he, he tried to join the military and fight as an aviator. They wouldn't let him. So he joined the civilian Air Corps and flew combat missions as a civilian, <laughs> like helping just, you know, just, just so he wow. wouldn't be seen as like a Nazi or a coward or whatever. Although he did fly them in the Pacific, so he wouldn't have to fight the Nazis directly. But then, you know, Henry Ford had been like really against Lend-Lease, really against all these things. By the way, if you read like books about Henry Ford, the parallels between Henry Ford and Elon Musk are just astonishing in so many ways. Yeah. But um, but anyway, but Henry Ford was like very, very anti-war, um, anti-Lend-Lease. And then, but after Pearl Harbor, he was just like, okay, build it all. We'll build all the stuff for the U.S. government. There was no going against that. Um, not even for a guy as respected as Ford. And um, so that day that, that China opens hostilities by blowing up our bases and killing thousands of our people, that day it will be war. And, and you predict that they would do something like that? I think that we have not typically seen good judgment from Xi Jinping, whether it is the IT crackdown, zero COVID, trying to crush the real estate industry, which succeeded... <laughs> Um, Belt and Road, which failed, or appointing these wolf warrior diplomats to just go all over the world and just bellow at people. We have seen a lot of dumb, sort of like Kaiser Wilhelm II sort of behavior from Xi Jinping on the international stage. Yeah. He's very, very good at riding herd on the Chinese Communist Party and sort of controlling them and being the big man and infighting and all that stuff. He is bad at actually making policy, just really bad. And talk to any Chinese person where there's where there, your conversation will not be recorded and they will agree with you because they all yeah. know that they have a, a dork in power. And so the answer yeah. is like, would rational Chinese people attack, do this attack? No. Yeah. Is Xi Jinping a rational person? Probably not. So what will he do? I don't know. Yeah. Fascinating. And he's not a coward like Trump either. Xi Jinping has right. great personal bravery. He grew up in a cave. Yeah. He's a caveman. And he's like, you know, he risks it all. And that scares me. I want to hark back to something we talked about earlier in this conversation where we said that millennials will be fine or they'll be well off because there's this massive inheritance that's going to happen. And this inheritance is like, or this massive transfer of wealth. I don't know if there's a parallel to it. And I wonder what other changes or second order changes will happen once this massive transfer of wealth is happening. Well, so, you know, I think millennials will be fine without the massive wealth transfer. I think that's just the icing on the cake. Yeah. But for people with, you know, middle class to rich parents, that's their nest egg. That's their retirement account. Yeah. They don't have to yeah. worry that much that they got started later saving right now because that, but they know that's coming. Right. Yeah. But that's like, that's like Charles, right? He, he became king at like what? 60 something like he had to wait that long for his mom to die it's like yeah. you might it might only come in time for your retirement you might be retired before you get yeah. your retirement account because of that's how inheritance works and so but they know it's coming and um it's not the best way to do intergenerational wealth transfers inheritance is is bad for a number of reasons it's unfair right yeah. it's uh it's lumpy it's uneven in addition to being undeserved, you know, it's uh, it, it, it perpetuates those those racial inequalities that we don't like, you know, because like the white people had all the houses that went up all the, you know, and in, in price. 
they got to buy the houses back during the days of segregation or, or just discrimination in yep. general. And so they, you know, they have, they have the money to leave to their kids and the, the, the black parents don't. And, uh, and the Hispanic parents don't cause they just showed up, you know, they didn't start, they didn't start making money like a hundred years ago. They started making money like now, you know, we've got all these, these unfairnesses of, of inheritance. And um, it's also, you know, it, it gives people the sort of feeling of powerlessness. I think Europeans have this problem. In, in Europe, inherited wealth is a big deal. And that has poisoned European society because it robs people of ambition. And it robs people of the idea that you could create novelty. That you need to stand on your own two feet. Because if you're a person who won't get inheritance, you know, maybe maybe you work hard and you become one of the nouveau riche or whatever. But then, like, it's just so much harder than if you just inherit money. And if you inherit money, you're just like, ah, I inherit money. And then you tell yourself some reason why you're better than other people and you deserve to have this money. And then it just is toxic to society. So I think Japan is it right. You know, Japan does this giant inheritance tax. There's some issues with it. You know, it, um, it can force people to sell properties that they shouldn't have to sell. And so, you know, there's some issues there. But gigantic inheritance tax, something like 60%, I don't exactly remember, um, 50% oh. maybe. Like they'll just take 50% of your inheritance. And, and um, <laughs> you know, the cap is really low. It's like 100K or above or something like that. Huh. And, um, and that resets society each time. I would, you know, Japan is in some ways not the land of opportunity because of domination by, by stupid corporations. But, but it's the land of opportunity in that, that the generation, generational status gets reset a lot more than it does in Europe or the United States. And so I'm not happy about the inheritance boom. I wish we could tax it away and, and then yeah. tax it, but then recycle it, right? Take the money yes. away from the people with the inheritance and then give the money just to everybody equally or use it to pay for something yeah. that everybody can use, like a public good, right? Like um, better infrastructure or, you know, a green energy that everyone can use. I want, yeah. I would rather do that, but I don't think we're going to. Then going back to millennials for a second, how, how do they compare with Gen Z? What are the most interesting contrasts you see? I don't know, because Gen Z, we don't really know what they're all about yet. Only the oldest vanguard of them is even out of college. I think that they are, from things that I'm seeing, they're much, much, much more cautious about posting stuff about their lives online. They do not live online the way the first social media generation did. They have learned their lesson. I think I saw some some survey the other day saying that that a lot fewer Gen Z people will post, uh, um, will do sexting, right? Will post like basically like, you know, sexy photos of themselves, send it to yeah. to people because they know they're going to get burned. I'm starting to meet some Gen Z people, like uh, you know, some people who come to San Francisco and hang around the tech industry after college. I'm starting to meet some yep. of these people. It's interesting because with with millennials, it's you know, we trade Facebooks, maybe maybe Instagrams or or Twitter stuff and the gen z people you know what they want to trade phone numbers <laughs> they're going back to phone numbers of course they're using signal uh but they're you know or or just text regular text it's yeah. like they they learned not to get involved in the giant scrum um and i think that's yeah. that's healthy and good in many ways i i think that climate doomerism is replacing some of the activism that you saw of millennials, yeah. like millennials are like, let's get out and shout about stuff. Gen Z people are like, 
let's sit home and feel bad and watch euphoria and do some drugs and <laughs> just cry yeah <laughs> you know like yeah. i'm gonna do ketamine and cry i don't know <laughs> like oh yeah. yeah we could have an episode where i just rant about how lame ketamine is <laughs> um that's a that's a good idea um we could do yeah, psychedelics more broadly but, but i guess while we're on the topic of crying you know there was this uh, a few months ago there was this sort of like piece around how liberals are more depressed than conservatives yes. or something and I, I assume he's talking about millennials or like that um and I, so i guess to the extent that millennials are very therapeutic and there's a lot of depression and it to the extent is it concentrated among sort of liberals like What's happening there? What was your take on sort of that conversation? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, millennials sort of like uh, during the Trump era, progressives in general, everyone to the left of center sort of meme themselves into thinking that everything is horrible. You know, it was important. Trump needed to be opposed and he did suck. And the movement that he led also sucked. But trying to whip yourself into into you know, becoming like a lifetime activist because that's the only way you can oppose shitty Trump movement. That's overkill. And that's not necessarily an efficient method of motivating yourself. Like negative motivations flame out quick. You know, you, yeah. you, if you tell yourself that everything sucks in the short term, it'll make you run into the street and get mad and fight in the long term. It will just sap you of your will to live. <laughs> and so negative positive motivations are necessary for long-term sustained motivation. There's a psychology insight right there. And I think that progressives overdosed on the negative self-motivation, the, the idea of everything is horrible, you know, like, and, and it wasn't, right? It yeah. wasn't as horrible. It, a lot of that was just made up. I feel, I want to go on a rant about, you know, how when I was, like, during the Obama era, it often felt like the only, like, the conservatives are out of touch with reality and, and progressive lived in the reality-based community where we believed in climate yeah. change and fiscal stimulus and stuff. And then, but in the 2010s, it felt like both, like, progressives also departed the reality-based community in many ways. And nobody lived yeah. in the reality-based community anymore, right? And they converted it to a party warehouse space. <laughs> and, then, and only a few of us partied there in the reality-based community because they all left. Everyone else left. Yeah. And so at this point, anything I say about just progressives being depressed will degenerate into sort of like cranky old manness. I'll just be like, well, <laughs> you memed yourself into depression, son. And it's true, probably. But, you know, I mean, also there's there's demographic stuff, right? So like progressives are more like much more likely to be educated. Educated yeah. people are more likely to be depressed in the first place. Blah, blah, covariates and correlations, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I prefer to be a grumpy old man and say that progressives meme themselves into being unhappy. <laughs> and why are educated people more likely to be depressed? <laughs> because if you think about stuff a lot, you'll get depressed because you're like, you know, <laughs> like a smart person is like, what happens after you die? Nothing. It's just nothingness. And I'll never think anything again. And no one will ever think anything again. And that's just our lot in life. And nothing matters. And we're just tiny little particles on this orb spinning through the infinite blackness of void space. There's no God and nothing is ever meant everything. And dumb people are thinking like, I like Cheetos. I want some Cheetos. Here's a Cheeto. Yum. Crunch. And like... <laughs> that's good. This is called rumination. That's a cold open. Hypothesis. Yes, I'm going to make that the cold open for this episode. Um, that's a that's a good one. Um, I'll is, try to uh, do one of those every episode. I'll try to do one like mad rant every episode. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, unless there's anything else to rant on, maybe I'll or to to end on. Um, maybe I'll I'll ask you if you want to give your your quick ketamine um take. Oh, I don't know. There's all these people doing ketamine at these at tech parties, and I'm just like, stop. <laughs> like, ketamine is just extended release nitrous oxide. I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. I hear some people recommending it if if you're depressed, yes. but I, I don't. Yes, I guess some other people are just doing it for fun. Yes, <laughs> all these people are doing it. They do it because it wears off quickly. It's a party drug hmm. that wears off quickly. Interesting. A a prominent tech person. I just don't want to out him because I'm not sure if he's public with his theory. But it, his theory is basically that. Um, so he doesn't know if this is accurate, but he thinks that believing it is good for you. Hmm. Where he, he says. Um, believe that every time something feels off, it's because um, you're either tired or you're hungry or like something biological as opposed mm. to something psychological. It's basically like, don't believe in psychology. Believe that anytime you had a fight with someone or you were off, it's because there was some input that you needed to, you just need to get better sleep or or whatever. And that way you're, you're just focused on making sure that you're um, focused on what you can control. Um, and so he's like, I'm not sure if it's true, but it's just, it feels like it's better for you. Um, <laughs> the Cheetos yum theory of happiness. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I endorse it. Give it a try. I will say that one, one regularity that I've noticed is that when you travel with a group, be it your family or your friends or whoever, when you travel with a group, there will always be fights on, on trips much more than you would just hanging out. And I know why there's fights on trips. Why? The reason there's fights on trips is irregular eating and drinking patterns. Huh. And so when you're on, and this is absolutely why, because I have managed to, I have managed to create a strategy. Actually, um, our, our mutual friend Min Kim and I created this together because we both realized what's going on. One thing about Min is she's always going to be ready with a bag of snacks and drinks. And so <laughs> I realized that that's the key bag of huh. snacks and drinks. So you always take one sweet snack, one salty snack and bottled water. And those three yeah. things, all you need is like salt, water, sugar. You'll be fine. Whenever you're yeah. just crankier or you'll, your body will know you'll be walking along and you'll be gaping at like, you know, the Parthenon or Shibuya or wherever you are. And you'll be like, Whoa, so much cool stuff. And your body's like, no, you need to eat. And you'll be like, no, stop body. <laughs> like I'm looking at the Parthenon. Um, and, and your body be like, no, you need to eat. And so the thing is, if you have a bag of snacks, like salt, sweet snacks, salty snack and water, you'll just idly be like, oh, hmm, Pocky, you know, or hmm, yeah. like goldfish. Oh, hmm, bottled water. <laughs> and you'll drink these things, you know, eat and drink. And then for some reason, you'll feel good at the end of the day when it comes time to like go eat dinner or go out and get a drink or go back to the Airbnb or, you know, whatever you're doing or go out to the club you won't be hypoglycemic. You won't be dehydrated. You won't be hyponatremic. Uh, people thought that they were coming to this podcast for uh, economic analysis, but really they, they're getting some life advice as well. Yes, um, snacks. <laughs> the the, the, Trito, uh, the uh, Cheetos. Yeah, theory. but don't That's do funny. that at home or you'll get fat. Yeah, yes, exactly. Only on the road, kids. Um, well, let, let, let's wrap on that. Uh, Noah, uh, thanks for another, uh, another banger. And uh, to be continued until after fun. your Japan trip. Uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll do an episode deep dive on Japan at some point. Awesome. Actually, let's do that when I come back from Japan. Econ 102 is a podcast from Turpentine. 
the network behind Moment of Zen, In the Arena, The Cognitive Revolution, and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review in the App Store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and erictornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.